Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge, where we are once again sitting in a cafe, so pardon the background noise, but that's how we have to meet. We don't have any office space. I'm here as always with co-host and boss, Al- <laughs> Alan Goldman, who's biting his bagel as I speak. Hi, Mike. Hi, could you hear the bagel? And also, this week, once again, a special treat, our youthful, energetic teacher, as opposed to us old losers, Benji Davis. How's it going, Benji? Yiggy, yiggy, yo. <laughs> wow. That, that must be youth culture. I don't know what he just said, but he is starting to sport a beard here. Yeah? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You're going to get old and rabbinic like us. That's not good. The wife already commented, said it has to go at the end of the week, so we'll see what happens. Ouch. All right. Well, we're not going to get into a to beard or not to beard argument. Uh, we have a couple topics we want to get into. We're so podcasty. <laughs> we're very podcasty. This is fantastic. The sad thing is I think we were like this before we had a podcast. So we were podcasty before. Yeah. What are you going to do? But uh, we have a couple of topics we want to get to today. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we'll have time for to discuss the uh, protests at the Kotel today and how that ended up in violence. So we won't have time to discuss it, but I think we can all agree that there's no place for that kind of violence when people are expressing their democratically valid opinions. So that that we have time to say. But other than that, right. I think we're going to run out of time because our two big topics today are... Happy Balfour Day. Balfour Day. Today is Balfour Day as we record it. I don't know what day it is when you're listening to it. Uh, we'll release it as soon as we can. And uh, But today is the 99th anniversary of the signing of the Balfour Declaration. So we want to talk about... The Balfour Declaration, a little bit about its history, a little bit about its impact, and why it's going to have a controversial 100th year coming up this coming year because of a new Palestinian campaign. And our second topic for today is going to be uh, elections. Because of the big election brouhaha in the United States, we thought it would be interesting to talk about how, um, how should Zionists who don't live in Israel function, appreciate and be involved in elections in the country where they live. So we'll sort of close off uh, the discussion talking about that. All right? That being the case, let us begin. Which one of you fellows would like to give a brief summary which explains the Balfour Declaration and a little bit about its main players who I would say would be Balfour and Weitzman? Actually, I was going to say I think... uh the guy who's been teaching about the Balfour Declaration before I could say Balfour Declaration should probably start us off. I was hoping to finish my bagel before <laughs> we finished with the Balfour Declaration. There is no such clause in your podcast contract. <laughs> I don't see sure? that. I, I looked in the fine print. Um, so, uh, if you remember, we go back to uh, World War One, and... Um, the Turks were in charge of uh, or controlling this whole area of the Middle East since the 16th century. And in World War I, that kind of all started falling apart. Um, and in the midst of that falling apart in 1917, as the British were um, battling for um, the area of Palestine and other things against the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, through a lot of politicking, and whatnot, um, they issued what's known today as the Balfour Declaration. Balfour was the foreign minister of the United Kingdom. And um, for lots of different reasons that are recorded in the history books from um, 
trying to get the Americans involved, you know, more involved and more dedicated to the war because of the strong Zionist uh, community in America, and that would make them happy to. Um, what's probably more, more had a more of an influence was uh, Chaim Weitzman, who was a noted scientist who had more or less invented um, acetone, which was a very important explosive, used as an explosive at that time, even though we use it as nail polish remover today. Well, uh, they used, I think they used it in making the explosive. It, it, it eased the part of the process of how they were making explosives. So, uh, so he was a well-respected British um, uh, scientist, and he was also very, obviously, um, active Zionist who eventually became the first president of Israel. So he, through his um, politicking and others and Ottoman Empire and the Jews in the land of Israel at the time, who, such as the Neely, um, the Neely group that were spies for the British, all this kind of came together in 1917 where the British decided um, in Parliament to um, uh, issue this Balfour Declaration. They actually gave it to Rothschild, one of the Rothschild family members who was a um, wealthy Jew, obviously, the Rothschild family, who was a British from the British branch of the family. And basically, very, very short, because it was very, very short, it promised uh, nothing, but rather recognized the Jewish rights to um, uh, establish a sovereign, uh, not a sovereign, a homeland, national homeland, whatever that means, um, in Palestine. Um, that's Bikitsur, really, what it was. So what was it? It was just a declaration by a foreign government that had actually no control of the area at the time of, uh, of a certain people that were, for some were living there, but the great vast majority weren't living there, that they had a connection to this land and had, had national rights in this land. The, the goal being political and military advantage in World War One, hoping to get what, – what, how would this possibly help? I think I, by the way, think there's an anti-Semitic assumption underlying the Balfour Declaration that if we make the Jews happy, then they will internationally, whether in Russia or the States, help us win World War One, as if Jews in any of these countries in, in, in have any control at all. Yeah, yeah. M- m- many say that that's for sure, right? And that is, that's what they're trying to affect the Americans. Dan Carlin, in his hardcore history, in his Armag- Road to Armageddon, and that's one. He he throws that out as like one of the hokey. Ideas that it was anti-Semitic, like it was like underlying British anti-Semitism in yeah, this. Oh, really? What did he? Do you remember what he said about why they did it? So he gave he gave over the Weizmann, the Weizmann uh, issue, also the Jews in the land here a little bit more, um, uh, that kind. But again, there's tons of theories out there why the British did it, and there's nothing really. Well, it wasn't a clean thing. There was a lot of pushback yeah. in in England over the Balfour Declaration. A lot of people who didn't want to, and in fact. The actual specific language was watered down from what Balfour originally wanted it to be. Originally, Balfour said um, His Majesty's government views with favor uh, the establishment of Palestine as a Jewish national state, and it was changed to in Palestine of a Jewish national home. That watering down was part of the... So, but I think it was something that most people actually don't talk about was the very strong Protestant, Anglican Protestant connection with the land of Israel, 
that is clear in the archaeologists that were coming to Israel from the 19th century, and the uh, and that was sort of a revival, also part of it. But I think the, the truth, the, the strength of Balfour. Well, Balfour personally was one of those people who exactly. was enchanted with the idea of the people of the revival returning to Israel. How it passed to the British cabinet were the philo-Semitics. Right. You're, we're saying uh, maybe they're anti-Semitic, but they're really philo, the land of Israel and the Bible of Israel right. and this idea of the God of Israel. Right. But people well, aren't really I'm talking about yeah, I'm saying something a little more perverse, which is that Zionists and anti-Semites often end up agreeing. Um, but I think that the, the, the strength of Balfour really is um, in 1922, right? It's, that's when the League of Nations, which is the accepted, recognized, legal, uh, international body, incorporates the Balfour Declaration into the Mandate for Palestine and sets really the purpose of the mandate, British Mandate for Palestine to set up a Jewish national home. Um, obviously not to infringe on other minorities that are here, um, as it says in the, in the document. But that's when the document actually gains its legal um, strength. So you're saying that the League, of Nation, the League of Nations accepting that the British Mandate of Palestine must implement the Balfour Declaration is more important a historical event for Israel than the actual Balfour Declaration of 1917? I guess you could say what's more important, the birth of the bar mitzvah, right? Uh, you know? The Balfour is the bird. The bar mitzvah is when it gets... That was an excellent analogy and so Jewish. So Jewish. Well, we are Jewish and we are sitting in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. No, at least not according to UNESCO, but at least according to us. What can you do? Exactly. I think uh, what was so significant about Balfour is we have to remember that the system of the time, it was, you know, for the most part, you had a few empires that were trading territories and fighting for territories and trying to solidify their power. Um, and and so they recognize that the Jewish people are a nation that, you know, they can be in control of, but they're a nation. And I, that's what we could take significance of. That it's not that Jews is just a religion or is Jews is just this minority which is annoying. But they could be a minority which is annoying, but they're an actual people with some sort of rights as a nation. And empires and, and imperial powers recognize that they are in charge of nations. They recognize that. And they're saying to Jews, you're one of these nations. And then I think that's a significant point. It's not really ever discussed. Well, World, World War I is a turning point where imperial thinking nations start, there's this, after the 19th century, this burst, burst of nationalism and colonialism shifts from we will own you to we will manage, help manage you and you will be sort of under our agent. Balfour is still a substance of this closure of this system. And the League of Nations is solidifying the ending period. Where it's the League of Nations is realizing, yeah, modern nationalism is totally a thing. And we have to recognize that. And we recognize that there's all these nations that we're ruling. And in recognition of that, we're going to create a system which still adheres to our needs as imperial powers while respecting, in some way or another, these nations which are saying, we want self-determination. There are smaller nations like... Serbs or Croats or Slavs or whatever, and the Jews are one of those small nations that also deserves to be free and self-ruling. So I, th I think uh, what Benji's saying is absolutely spot on, as they say, if we're talking about the British. But um, and I think it's a very important point to drive home, because what he's saying is that the British aren't giving us. And I think this is the mistake that most people make. The British aren't giving us legal rights to anything, right? That, that's not what the Balfour is about, or the League of Nations is actually just acknowledging and recognizing that. This, the, the, that Jews are a nation and a people, and that is 
that is key for it because then the rest follows because a nation then deserves self-determination in their land, right? And everything grows out of that. And, and so that, that is very, very, very important. And a big critique, and I think that's what the next part of our conversation is, well, Balfour is just an extension of Western European colonialism. And it's a, a symptom of that, or it's, that's what it is. Uh, oh, because the Jews are just an extension of the British Empire, which is taking land that wasn't theirs, and we know it wasn't theirs. But we have to understand the time. And the time explains how we can have the Balfour Declaration not trying to... Yes, the Balfour Declaration represents an interest of an imperial power. But what we can take for that as Zionists or for Jews is a recognition from a leading world power and which would then trans translate into the international community recognizing the Jewish people as a nation with rights to self-determination. Wait, are you saying it doesn't matter if their intention... You're saying that the... We have to take the... Well, let me ask my question. The, establishing the Jewish people as one of the nation-states of the world, which happens certainly by 1922, when the League of Nations ratifies the Balfour Declaration to the mandate, that matters no matter what the intentions of the British were. The British may have been thinking as colonialists, but the fact is the community of nations around the world accepted the Jews right. among them. 100%. Um, it was a funny way of showing acceptance, uh, no, what happens we, in the next 20 years, but okay. But also, <laughs> well, but, but nations aren't obligated to help build each other up. Right. Nations don't, don't run the other nations. That's the point. We will recognize you. We'll wish you luck. We'll be allies with you. We'll trade with you. We'll even help you if it suits our interests. Right. But once we recognize you as part of the community of nations, well, good luck. Make yourself a nation. Go ahead. And don't blame the, the, the Jewish people for the colonial desires of an empire. That's number one. And then... Or the politics they're, that they're willing to use within that context is what you're saying. I mean, the Jewish people are using... Are they using the politics using that's available this, to them? They're using the system. system of which they find themselves and which all nations that were ruled try to then gain independence. Well, hold on. I think we're putting the cart before the horse because you're, you're, we're, I think you guys are partially arguing against the... Uh, the uh, nice waiter. Uh, you guys are arguing against the current campaign that uh, the PA is planning to wage over the next year, the 100th year of Balfour. Right. Well, I, don't think it's just a, I don't think it's just PA. I think it's been an underlying you know, subtext of Balfour for, for quite a while claim against us. It's true, but they're actually, I think, planning an actual organized campaign of making the world aware of the Balfour, de using this cent centennial to make the world aware that, look at this, these, these guys sitting in a room in England talking to a Jewish scientist made this proclamation about a part of the world that they had no right to make a decision, ignoring the opinions of the people who actually were living in the land at that time, who were majority Arab. That's, I think, the campaign they're getting ready to run, right? Not That's right. the essence of the... Yeah, correct. Yeah, but they, why don't... I mean, I guess, maybe we're jumping to the end here, but what is the legitimacy to all the nation-states in the Middle East, if not that they had their own Balfour Declaration? Well, to a certain extent, the Middle East did not have a na nation-state framework until after World War II. And as all Arab countries... Not really. From World War I... Right. Till the app, till post World War II. Oh, right. right, that's I said World War II, but I meant World War One. Yeah. Correct. So uh, uh, basically, the entire Middle East and North Africa, the whole Arab world, only entered into the framework of nation states that Europe had Europe had been using for quite a long time after World War One. 
that part of the post-World War I world was that the nation-state idea is it transported to the Middle East. And most Arab areas got their own nation-states, whether in the Middle East or North Africa. One group did not, and that's the Palestinians, because there was another group. What about the Kurds? Well, one group did not that was Arab, majority. There are other minorities. There are a Muslim group in the Middle East. There are lots of Muslim groups in the Middle East that didn't get independent. They're an actual... I mean, maybe I'm going too far here, but they're an ethnic national group that have, you know, what we define as nation as shared land, language, and culture. They have all three. I think the Kurds are what we would be without a state. A large group that the world is happy to help when it's convenient and will turn their back on them in a second if it doesn't suit their national interest. There's a certain amount of sympathy, even a certain amount of respect, but ultimately they're going to have, if they want there to be a Kurdistan, they're going to have to do it on their own. And they may be working towards it. Yeah. The closest they've ever been, but it's not. Well, because Turkey is a powerful player, most countries aren't willing to anger Turkey and, NATO, and NATO, NATO and a NATO member. It's not so easy to help them because Kurdistan would take over part of. And even though they're autonomous in parts of Syria and Iraq now. Yeah, but that's not the same as a recognized state. Right. Yeah, but they could delay. They sending the assuming that the mess gets cleaned up a bit, they're going to Kosovo it that's or South Sudan it. And that's quite a big assumption. No, but if they can actually, I mean. They're powerful. The Iraqi force. parts, yeah, and they may be able to build a Kurdistan in North Iraq, but not. But the Turkey part is the problem part. But I, I don't want to get too right, right, to too point. far afield. But that's but that's really relevant. In other words, yeah. the international recognition is not the issue. Whatever happens to the Kurds happens to the Kurds. They're going to have to do what they do, whatever the international community thinks or says. And that's that's I think what you were saying. The point you, Alan, are making about Benji's point, which is that international recognition is lovely and really helpful. But we don't base our identity as Zionists connected to Israel on the League of Nations or the UN. We just appreciate it when the world community gives us the thumbs up recognition. Like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. If we go, if we go back to the Palestinians, getting more concrete. So, and the right wing of Israel will claim that Jordan was supposed to be the Palestinian land. And as we say, we say one country, one people didn't get. So there's a, a stream of thought in Israel, right? When he says, no, they did get Transjordan or what we call today Jordan was supposed to be for them Why? when they blocked it up. Uh, so that is the good question what that happened? we kept saying. What happened? It didn't. What happened was England in 1920 decided to draw a line at the Jordan River. Two thirds of Palestine were sectioned off, called the Transjordan, the Across Jordan part of Palestine. San Remo, San Remo Agreement in uh, 22. That's when it was no, official. No, no. no? San Remo in 22, I think, is, San the, League is the League of Nations, right? In, in 20, they they separated off before that. That's the whole point. That they and they, they give that. it to the Hashemites, King Abdullah from, exactly. from, uh, from Saudi Arabia, and tell him he can rule the people who live there. Alan, your point is that there is a stream of Israelis who say that should be the Palestinian state. Correct. Well, he was of ruling Palestinians. He was ruling Palestinians, that's true. Is. Well, most of the Palestinians that we call there are refugees from 48, not... And they call themselves at this point Jordanians. So since so identity... Palestinian-Jordanian citizens, no? The, the refugees from 48, but the, the pre-48, those who lived in Jordan are, don't consider themselves Palestinian. So... I'm just saying that there is that right wing, and as Michael said, no. But what about but what about the Arabs that live in sorry the Arabs that live in that territory, Jordan, who share ethnically, culturally, linguistically, are much closer to the Arabs in the land of Israel than they are to the Hashemites. But, yes and no. But living in Jordan, that moved there as a result of gaining power. 
Like I think there is. I don't know that they have that much cultural, linguistic, or ethnic heritage, which is so different. The Palestinians in of themselves have very many differences within themselves. So I'm not sure which they would have. Maybe the ones in the Jordan Valley, or they have, or I don't know. Well, this is part of the problem that the Palestinians have had. They don't. They don't come from a long, formulated heritage, cultural, ethnic, linguistic, that created an identity for them before it was time for them to have a state. They are trying to recreate that, retro recreate it. And it didn't really exist, even though I'm not saying that they don't have a right to ask for a state as a people who, who are stateless. I think that's a legitimate you know, desire. But part of their problem is they don't have that rich cultural heritage that other groups might have. Well, some in Palestinian intellectuals would disagree with you. I'd say if you read uh, Edward Said or Rashid Khalidi, they would say it actually goes back centuries. It goes back centuries, and this place was referred to as a... Palestinian province or territory, a part of the Syrian or you know country or whatever you want to call it, is and there was this shared ethnic, cultural, religious. Sure, and when they um, show me the specific territory that dates back, you know, around the time of the rise of Islam. Sure, and when they show me the shared cultural, food, clothing, and lang- linguistic commonality of a Palestinian people, I'll be I'll be convinced by that. In other words. Their argument is that there's a region of the world that didn't, and the people in it didn't get statehood. I think is valid to say that that people had a national identity. In other words, their 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 complaint that they their statehood was stillborn is, I think, a valid complaint. Their claim that we are an ancient people, you know, when Saib Arakat says, "I'm a descendant," uh, my ancestors are the Jericho people who He's Joshua from met. Egypt. He is from Egypt. But even if, but he lived in Jericho, and even if he was born in Jericho, it wouldn't. Make his argument. Well, I, I was. I grew up in L.A. Family is not from L.A. Like, or like, my mom was from Ohio and moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, Doesn't make her the Dodgers. Connected, fine. No, so no part of your cultural heritage is L.A. Yeah, so part of Saeed Arakat's cultural heritage is Jericho for sure. But he is part of. I mean, I don't know that much about him, but a nomadic people just as Yasser Arafat was Egyptian. That's fine, and I, my family went from Poland to Brooklyn, and now here I am here, and I consider my ethnic identity as Jewish, and my national identity as Jewish, and my citizenship status as Israeli. In other words, these things are somewhat mutable, and you can, you can define it, but I don't think you can make a credible claim no, that there was a peoplehood no, of Palestinians before World War I. And they are descendants of an, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, if you want to call it, and the rise of Islam. That's spread all over the Middle East, North Africa, and Western Europe. And well, again, that this this is where this is between our heritage, which you cannot say there is a Jewish people and take out the land of Israel because they just don't exist without the land of Israel. So, so I think that there's uh, there's tremendous amount of confusion for these reasons because, first of all, you have you have Palestinians who are not necessarily from the Arabian Peninsula. Right, that they were here and probably got converted when the Muslim in, came in, and then others who came from other places. And in other words, a lot of them were Jewish. By the time you get to the 20th century, I don't think you're talking about people with a clear ethnic. You know, if you check their DNA, you'll find other things. Yeah. But you're talking about an Arab majority who lived in Palestine Correct. before World War One, who I don't think had a coherent, cohesive. Who identified and, and connected to this land. Saw it as their home. As citizens of the Ottoman Empire, they lived under the Ottoman rule, and their homes were regional. Their tribal lands, where they associated with, belonged here. If they were Bedouin, they moved nomadically through a range of lands that was theirs. 
if they were villagers, they associated with their village. If they were city people, with their city. That city was in a region of the Ottoman Empire called Palestine, Syrio-Palestine or whatever they called it. But there was no such coherent thing as a national Palestinian group. That comes from those Western colonialists who imposed that nation-state view on the Middle East and North Africa. And Balfour is the first... Or, they, or I think, or they would say, earlier, it comes from the, the rise of not European nationalism in the 19th, 20th century. And there are those who would argue the same thing about the Jews. I'm not saying I would argue, but that Jewish nationalism comes from European nationalism in the 19th, 20th century. It's a, it's, a re- it's a response to the changing system. That's what it is. Changing world system. And the thing is, though, with Zionism being rooted in Western Europe, it was by individuals, groups, people that were deeply rooted in the modern international system, that understood what modern nationalism means, that didn't have a tribal or a village affiliation. And they were barely even citizens of the countries they lived in. They just, Jews had just gotten citizenships in the countries yeah, they lived in. But everyone from the Saudis to ISIS, I think, would argue, it didn't, this wasn't the modern world. That was the European modern no, world. Correct, but then the system changed right then and what, there. How did it change? Europe came to them. Ah, so that's colonialism. Europe brought their system, imposed it on us, 100%. and we, we moved on with it. ISIS says that was a crime against humanity. We must unravel it. Saudi Arabia says, And reestablish eh. the caliphate. And what? Reestablish, reestablish the caliphate. Make the caliphate. Which is, which, which is the medieval model. Yeah. Make the caliphate great again. <laughs> Alan's running for office. Listen, <laughs> by the way. The <laughs> That was Benji, sorry. By the, way, by the way, if any of you guys join ISIS after listening to this podcast, Alan, Benji, and I get a 10% kickback from ISIS. No, we're not letting I think what's in... I think you could joke about They're going to get us arrested. Some NSA thing is going to translate this and get us in trouble. Like, the changing... from the Middle East. You're saying... People say that Palestinian nationalism is a response to Zionism. It is rather a response to the changing system. It is a response to Europe coming at their doorstep. And Zionism might be a part of that. I'm, I'm, turning, I'm turning 30 in six months from tomorrow, so... We can still call you a kid, though, because we're really old. That's an important distinction to make. And I don't also... I've been... It's a response to colonialism, not a response to Zionism. That's what you're saying? I still don't want to say colonialism. I know you don't, but that system coming from Europe without being invited... Is called. I've lost a little bit the thread of the fight between colonialism and nationalism. One's an know. intellectual idea, another was a political right. tool. But the consequence of the system itself. Like because World War I, here's what I'm saying because World War I was a world war, that it was a European war that spilled into the Middle East and North Africa. It brought, Middle East, it brought to the Middle East. European culture, politics, ideas, and, and, and the Arab response was to go along with that and develop within that framework. As well as the Jewish response. The Jews had been writing it for decades before. The, Jews, the Zionist movement had started already 1860s, 1880s, whenever you want to say it starts. But I'm saying Jewish response to the, the, the context of the society they were living to, in. So they were living in Europe and the nationalism then affected Jewish intellectual thought and created Jewish modern nationalism, right? So when the Arabs become in contact with that, if you want to talk about that, it's World War One because of the context of them coming to the internet. Right. So that's when they become exposed to uh, European nationalism. 
Yeah, around half a century later, the Arab world gets involved in this movement of nationalism that the Jews had been involved with and were trying to use. And so the, <clears throat> the Palestinians face, they can't understand, although some accept the Balfour Declaration and some, accept the, some Arabs are very happy to have a, a Jewish state rising in their midst, but it seems like because of people like Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was the Mufti of Jerusalem, who leads this, this rejection movement of saying we don't recognize the Jews' right to be here or any foreign power's right to put the Jews here. And so the rejection of the Balfour Declaration is still part of that. Well, like the bra other branches of his family that got Jordan and Syria and Saudi Arabia, he wanted something. <laughs> to be honest, that's how it worked. And he, and he saw that, that was Palestine. Um, and he didn't get it. Yep. Well, he could have gotten something. That's always been the problem. Should you? Ex should, what? Why not? Com why not compromise and take something that's better than nothing, and then share that? Let the Jews have the rest because what? both are making valid claims. What? It, this would be so outrageous, probably. But you know, we're podcasting, so we get to say outrageous things, right? Palestinians are making a um, right a political movement against Balfour for the next year. Why can't there be a movement within Israel or the Jewish world to be like? You didn't accept partition, and that led to the deaths of 23,000 people oh, over the last 60-plus years. If you, you accepted partition, there is peace. There is no conflict. And you're responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of peoples and dozens of wars and terrorism on both sides even just because you wouldn't accept to split the land in half. I'm in. I, I just don't think it wasn't hundreds of thousands of people. It's not hard. The numbers run, but it's no, probably a much smaller number. Twenty-three plus thousand Israelis, and I would say around a hundred thousand Arabs have been killed. No, in the Arab-Israeli conflict, don't really we don't really know. They don't give numbers. numbers but I will say, well, like but, fifteen thousand Egyptians. But actually, I read something interesting in the paper today, which is going along what you're saying. Is the the seven is a is is a critical date? Nineteen seventeen. 1937 is Peel. Nineteen forty-seven is Partition Plan. Nineteen sixty-seven is Six Day War. <laughs> right? It's an agul. It's a uh, like this year, right? In, next year, in 17, will be 100 years for Balfour. Balfour. 50 years since 67. 50 years, 67. 70 years since 47. And 90 years since 37. 80, that's why I'm in Jewish education, okay. not math. Okay, I, I was not okay, told so I would have to do math on this podcast. Okay, that so, is not uh, fair. Rabbi Bible Codes. Oh, 80 um, years, sorry. <laughs> Rabbi Bible Codes. 80 years since RBC. <laughs> so what are you trying to say? There's going to be peace in 2017? Ooh, yeah, way, bring right. it home with your Bible code point. Oh, is I'm saying, or is the Mashiach going to come? I'm saying they made the mistake on Oslo, and they should have done it in 87 or 97. Well, they, oh, try, they tried in 87. First Intifada was 87. First Intifada was 87. Yeah. What about also that, uh, come on, what was that deal they were negotiating Why is 97 in England with the Jordanians in 87? Come on. You guys are history buffs. I'm not that buffy. Also in 87, I want to say Jordan takes away its claim for the West Bank. Sorry. Yeah, so it's part of the, the Intifada thing. Oh, there you go. All right, well, now that... I was born in 1987. I was about to say, were you born yet? I think we've just proven, ipso facto, that Benji is the Messiah. <laughs> I, I should have graduated college in 87, but I took a... Gap year? Uh, no, I just dropped out for a year. And then... Uh, I started in 87. I finished my gap year in Israel in September 87. I went to college. Oh, where'd you go to your gap year, Mike? Uh, Yeshiva Koto. Wow. Stark. And uh, who was who was your Roshiva at the time then? 
Ravbina. Ravbina, right? Because they don't necessarily. Well, Rav Hadari was the Rav Yeshiva. Ravbina was head of the Ameri- the Eklitznik program. And many of them may not know that Ravbina was. Who's uh, Ravbina? Oh, back in the day, it was yeah. a very different place than it is today. Now he's the head of Nativari. They broke off. Well, they were. Well, that's complicated. Aria broke off from Hakotel. Well, Ravbina left and took the American program with him. Well, he was kind of pushed out, but that's a whole other. That's a whole. It was very. Let's 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 do that, shall we? I think it's time for the. Once we're talking, I don't think I will cut it out because I thought it was fun, but I think we've reached the natural conclusion of our Balfour discussion. Of course, we'd love to hear other questions that you have, other clarifications that you want. Um, you can always find us and contact us easily at juisrael.jerusalemu.org where you can find ways to contact us, review the material. We would love for you to write for the blog, and we would love also if you could record and send us short Israel Inside moments. Moments that teach people, that explain, little short stories that show people about what life in Israel is really like. I'm kind of going, I heard that name today at uh, Emunava Omanut. They came up with that idea. If we call it an Israel inside moment or an inside Israel moment. We'll see we how you guys. Movie. What are we calling it? Well, yeah, we have a movie, Israel Inside, yeah. But were we calling it Real Israel before? Well, our hashtag Real Israel is our Instagram campaign that if you take a nice picture of that shows the inside of life in Israel, hashtag Real Israel is our way of, and it's really working. I've checked it a, a few times. I did the first range yesterday. I yeah, did I the like first that. range in Old City yesterday. And did you see my fog rolling in over Neve Daniel movie? No, I didn't. It's oh, nice I'll have to check it out. It's a nice one. Um, so, so, Mike, why don't you set up the elections for us? Meaning, what, what, what should a, uh, uh, a Zionist Jew living in, a, in America... How should they make the decisions on what to, on what candidate to vote for? It's a funny thing, right? Because if you're a Zionist, to a certain extent, you care deeply about the state of Israel. But you're living in the U.S. elections are now, but we could be talking about the U.K. or Belgium or Canada or wherever Jews live. And often Zionists are, at least explicitly, if not you know sometimes even sometimes only it's implied, but sometimes it's explicit that they're accused of dual loyalty. So since we are not dual loyal people. My question is... Like, so we're loyal only to the state in which we live? Why are we dual... Why are we dual loyalty, people? We both have... We all have two citizenships, American and Israeli. We file taxes to the IRS. Do we not? For crying out loud. It's dis- it's horrible, but I pay taxes to Uncle Sam, and I want my voice heard. Why do you pay? You make that much money that you pay? you got to get a new accountant. <laughs> no, no. You have to. They you kill you. You need to get into logistics, but someone in Israel who is an independent freelancer or owns their own business is required to pay 14% of their profits to Social Security. Oh, you pay Social Security. Yeah, yeah, you got to pay. Well, I guess I guess you're right. I That's guess that is, I guess, see, dual loyalty no, has a... There's not going to be Social Security in 40 it years. crashes. Yeah. It's going to crash. All right, guys. <laughs> Let's not and democracy are going to crash in a week, potentially. Let's be honest here. Okay, we're going to cut our conversation here <laughs> because okay. we've reached the panic button. But no, I will say this. Maybe dual loyalty to me sounds pejorative, but you're right. I, I can be loyal to two things, and that is not contradictory. I think the, it's hurled as an accusation like you're a fifth columnist, a quizzling. You're going to stab us in the back. But it's not meant that way. But let's talk about how do you handle your – when you are in the franchise, you can vote. How should you take your voting? Do you balance – where do you balance Israel in your thinking about voting? I have always taken the position, maybe not always. I mean, everybody changes their mind. I can't think back to when I was that young. But I have come to the position that uh, following the old rabbinic tradition that you must have deep loyalty to the country where you are. And therefore, you should, in my opinion, in my opinion, 
vote for the candidate who you think will do the best job for the country where you are voting for that candidate and run the government that's most beneficial to that government. And that, in the end, will be the best thing for Israel. If you're in a democracy and you make it better and stronger and healthier, making a strong democracy wherever you live is better for Israel in the long run. You can take Israel policy into account, but that shouldn't be the deciding factor. That's my opinion. Okay, but I don't... I can't imagine you saying that in 2012 or in 2008. I mean, I did. <laughs> no, but isn't it... When I voted in 2008 and 2012, and uh, I've never voted for a winner, if that helps. I voted twice, and I've never voted for a winner. If that alludes who I voted for. So who's I was voting in, for this time? <laughs> hopefully the winner. Still haven't said who I'm voting for yet. But I didn't think about that in 08 and 2012. I thought about it. What's the best for America? 08, I was living in America. So let's say in 2012. I had already been living in Israel for three plus years. And I voted for the candidate which I thought was best for America and would have a good policy regards to the Middle East, of which Israel is a big part of, and as we're a part of this region. That was a big part of it. But my values, as I could say, a, I don't know, right of center voter at the time, was like, Romney's the guy. And I also thought he would have a good policy on Israel. Now in 2016, I'm voting a lot more based on what you were talking about, I think, what would be best for the country in the United States would then be, and the democracy of the United States, which would then be better for Israel. I mean, as someone who never voted for Obama, I was a big critic of his Israel policy, and I thought it had bad consequences for us. And Hillary could actually, like, she could just continue that. She was in the administration for especially his first term, which was horrible for Israel, in my opinion. So, I mean, if, if we're going to so, talk about our own voting history, I will tell you that in 2008, I did vote for Obama. And assumed that his policy would not be great for Israel, but I assumed that the American-Israeli relationship was so strong that there was little damage he could do to the relationship that was sustainable. And now, and now, do you think there's little damage he could do? I don't think he's done. I don't think he's done tremendous damage to the relationship. I think that the the, the allied, in my opinion, the allied relationship with the, between the United States and Israel is so vitally of interest to both countries that neither of them can afford to seriously damage the relationship. Signing a $3.8 billion deal that will go through the next two and a half administrations, to me, is not a great example of a terrible relationship. We get caught up in the diplomatic brouhaha in wars of words when actually the United States is working economically, politically, and, and militarily hand-in-glove with Israel at least as much as it has over the past decade. I would say, I would say uh, at least if we're on the Obama-Israel you know, Israel relations, I'd say actually Obama's foreign policy was disastrous for uh, Every country. In the, I don't think there's an allied nation in the United States that's happy with Obama. It's right. not. It was not a good foreign right. policy presidency. Right. It was, uh, but exactly. So that was that was terrible for all. And Israel fell into that basket of of a really bad, incoherent, non-strategic, um, deferring to enemies over allies, making everybody frustrated. It's teacher moment. You should read "Doomed to Succeed" by Dennis Ross. He explains the different approaches uh, to Israel by white, uh, every White House since the establishment of the State of Israel. And Obama was similar to others, which tried to leverage Israel to get closer with the Arabs. And Dennis Ross, I think, rightfully argues that it doesn't work. They have different interests, and at the end of the day, they're not going to base their relationship with the West based on whether we are perceived to be close or not close with Israel. Look, we think that Israel and America have always been allies. They have not. In 56, that's exactly what Eisenhower was trying to do, leveraging Israel to get Egypt to be closer to him, and that didn't work for America either. So let's get back to our, this voting question. So how do you, uh, 
how, how do you vote? So do you? I mean, it really depends on how you interpret Trump. Uh, like, there's a few different interpretations of Trump within the Jewish community. One, no, no, no. I, I, I don't think. I think this election is special because of Trump. Look, it's I different. think if you're, I, I, I think if you're, if you're a Democrat and you think the Democratic approach is better, then you will uh, justify the election of Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that she's under FBI investigation. I think if you think, which is crazy. Okay, I but think if you're. I'm, I think if you're a Republican and think that Trump will run a Republican administration, then you will probably vote for Trump. I mean, it's not a problem. This is what polls are showing, and 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 and, and put aside all the all the things that he brings to the table. I'm less interested in talking about who people should vote for. I think the vote is you should vote your conscience and your are and your judgment. voting based on Democrat and Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's how they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's how you make your decisions, where you see yourself. Um, aligned, and if you, uh, I, I'm saying to not put Israel at the center of that decision, just as a factor. So I want to push back a little bit. Is that once you say that most people take one or two or maybe three issues that are really their priorities, and that's how they vote on. Like, how many people really know? Like, what? What do you mean by like, like one or two or three issues? Like, med- I think a lot of people vote on medical care. Like, I think old, older Americans or people, my parents, age, you know, a lot of time, medical care. You know, the whole medical care system that will be primary in what they're thinking about. You know, people, 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 based on what it most they feel affects them in their lives. You're saying single issue voting isn't a problem because people short, at least shortlist voting is what most people do anyway. Um, look at Utah. Utah most likely will go to an independent conservative Mormon. Are people voting on one issue there? Or are they voting based on the fact that the party that has won that state for over a couple generations, they reject him. They reject the leader of the Republican Party, and they're voting someone, which I can't even tell you his name. Can you guys tell me his name? I don't remember, but he seems like a pretty Evan cool guy. Something, he yeah. might win. Mitt Romney, man. <laughs> no. Oh, they would love if Romney were on the ballot. He was the... He was a uh, Mormon. He is no, Mormon. No, and he's, he's like a... He's a clergyman. Yeah. No, but... Trump's factor is he's turning off people that are traditionally involved in politics and bringing in people that normally weren't involved. Right, so is Hillary. Okay, but go back to this. uh, People vote on one or two issues. Shortlist is the issues. One issue. Why shouldn't Israel be... I guess I I don't think that's the best way to vote necessarily. of uh, someone who's thinking about foreign policy. If you're thinking about foreign policy... Well, that is sort of... I guess I'm not really disagreeing. I'm just saying it a little differently. It's not a dual loyalty thing. It's just thinking about what is best for American interests around the world and especially in the Middle East. Yeah, you know, like, it's like, you know, uh, on the back of the cereal box, they always have that... Well, at least they used to. That ridiculous picture of, like, bread and bacon and eggs and orange juice and and milk and and a salad and then a bowl of cereal and they say this cereal can be part of a balanced breakfast no, and nobody eats that breakfast everyone just has a bowl of cereal and then runs out the door I'm saying I think that a voter I, I think optimally should have a balanced uh, set of issues to look at you're probably right that most people don't but I think you should as much as possible weigh as many factors so I guess I'm arguing against it. I'm not arguing that Israel shouldn't be at the center I guess you're right Alan I'm arguing that you should be a multi-issue voter as much as you have the energy or interest for, I guess, a well-rounded voter. However, what's different, I also think, with Trump is we don't know. If it's a traditional Republican candidate, you would know where they stand pretty much on Israel and most issues and most policies. Trump starts a campaign and says, I'm going to be an amazing uh, Dude, you're campaigning against Trump. Nobody's, that's, not, that's not the conversation, man. No, no, no. I'm saying this election is different because this election is not an issue election. 
and you can't say you can't vote on Israel. I don't think you can vote on Israel in this election because you don't know how one party is going to. Um, you don't know how one party is actually what their policy is going to be. If it was Marco Rubio, you know, great neoconservative. I know where I'm standing. I, I cannot believe we're going to have a, a, this discussion on our little podcast, but I will push back on that. Okay. What's the argument to that? The argument to that is that Madison did not set up a stupid system. He set up a brilliant system of checks and balances in the Constitution. And so whatever Mishugas, the chief executive, has, there's a system in place that will prevent him from performing serious damage. So he's unpredictable. And you, can't, you cannot say it's not an issue election. How are you going to vote for it? Then you, there's no one to vote for. It's not an issue of election. If you're just voting on a personality, then, it, then what are you voting for? I really, I don't like voting for personality. I like voting for... I just don't know how one can say on issues for a candidate that's been to the left, to the right, to the middle, and crazy. I just don't know how a vote for Trump is not an... I don't know how that is an issue vote. Okay, but you're not a Trump voter, and neither am I, so I'm not, I'm not in the position to... I'm, I'm not... I, I have a personal uh, 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 habit that if, a, if millions of people living in a democracy hold a mainstream opinion, I don't think it's crazy. If I don't understand it, then I have to endeavor to understand it and make sense out of it. And ultimately, it must make a certain degree of sense if so many people are... are For sure. I absolutely agree. But I don't think... I think that... No. The attraction of Trump was not a specific issue. It was... Um, you want to know the issues? I'll tell you the issues. Immigration... Corruption. It was someone. Who, it was an anti-establishment person that they knew and recognized that came in and heard them and listened and expressed some of these deep-rooted concerns and vulnerabilities. We are fiscally Ill- irresponsible. Globalization has led to a disenfranchisement and a lack of economic opportunity for millions of Americans, and somebody has to come in and fix that. It's it's it, yeah, it's our place in the world, and we have to. Now I'm not again. I'm not. A, I'm not a Trump voter, but. I think it's much, I don't know. I mean, we're getting too deep into this and away from our discussion. But I would just say is, I just don't remember, and I don't have a very long memory of elections. Where it's just, it's really a election of identity. I, I think, unfortunately, I think that's, that's true. In America that we haven't had before. I, I think. I think. It, I think for many voters, that has always been the case. I think for certainly Obama was a, uh, uh, an identity. I think it's. Oh, I like Ike. Is not a campaign based on issues. I think since it's certainly since the television, since the age we started doing commercials, thirty-second commercials for our presidents, it has turned to a large extent to personality-based. The famous how did how did how did uh, Kennedy beat Nixon in the debate? Does anyone remember what they talked about? No, they uh, better better tie. <laughs> we know that Kennedy looked great and Nixon broke out into a sweat and looked terrible. So I, I'm not I'm not denying that many voters vote that way. I'm advocating for more enlightened, well-rounded, issue-based voting with concern for Israel being a part of that well-balanced set of issues. But it should be for all America. I think it should be all Americans, not just a Jewish thing. I think Jews should vote like good Americans. American Jews. And Brits should vote like good Brits. That's why I don't vote. I have I have moral problems. I I, I always run on the fence. That's why I sent away from my application this year and haven't voted. As As an American living in Israel, I always have concerns voting. Yeah, because I throw my, my representatives are here. They represented my total. If you're not uh, voting on a one issue issue, my representatives are here. My income tax I pay here. Um, my you know things I throw my lot in here. So I'm not so sure. I, I don't feel comfortable 
claiming a right to, to that vote. I don't think that's a right or wrong issue. I think that's a judgment call issue. But that's the flip side. Uh, of the, that's the other side of the coin. Once you live here, I definitely felt very weird voting on propositions relating to the L.A. County and state of California. Oh, it's California. It's all yeah. That, so many propositions that I voted on. I was like, oh. legalize it. <laughs> no comment. Um, legalize it. <laughs> um, however, no taxation without representation. I. America says I'm still a part of their country even though I live far away and then I have to report my income and pay Social Security. I get to have a say because it affects me. I think that's an entirely valid point and I will add to your point even though I don't necessarily feel super comfortable with it. Um, That's the system and that's sort of what we're talking about in Balfour. Whatever the system is, if that's the system and you work within that system, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what everybody does. And then you can't criticize me for working in a system that's set up that way. So if they set up that I can absentee vote, then I should be able to. Israel does not offer that to people outside of Israel unless they're serving the state of Israel in some some form. If that was allowed to happen, maybe you don't even have the, the protest today at the Kotel. Because, because Israelis living outside of Israel could vote uh, no, and change it. they wouldn't care anymore. They wouldn't either tip it, I don't think. They, well, they've been absorbed into the American Jewish experiment. Could be. So let's leave that as the full circle wraparound for this episode of the they podcast. Live they live in dissonance. Dude, we all live in dissonance. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're Jews and we're humans. So, wishing you all a happy Balfour Day whenever it is you listen to this. Wishing you a happy, uh, political, uh, exciting adventure. Wishing good luck to the tribe as a former Clevelander for, uh, for the Cleveland Indians tonight in the World Series. And uh, don't forget to please check out our website and all the opportunities we describe for you at juisrael.jerusalemu.org. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Toodaloo.